welcome to Church of the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. Lord, would you open our hearts, our ears, our minds to hear what you have to say. May your Holy Spirit convict us when we need to be convicted, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and mostly, Lord, we just ask that Jesus would be glorified in all of this. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, you did that well. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I know it was hard to get here. I'm looking outside at all the traffic that's going by, and when we woke up this morning and drove in, I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know why streets are closed, and then it turns out there's this big thing going on in East Boston. I'm like, man, I am a terrible East Boston pastor. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> so apparently, just so that you know, public service announcement, all of the streets are closed, and the idea behind what Boston is doing is you get to walk in the streets today. <laughs> Great. So I'm from this town called Bakersfield. Buck Owens made Bakersfield famous. I don't know if you know who Buck Owens is. If you don't, don't worry about it. (laughs) You're not missing much. But Buck used to sing this song called Walking the Streets of Bakersfield. So today we get to walk the streets of East Boston. So I guess if you want to listen to that song and walk, that would be kind of fun. Um, We're going to be continuing through the book of Hebrews. So at Church at the Well, we basically just kind of pick a book and start systematically working our way through. The purpose of the book of Hebrews, the author has basically been attempting to help us and remind us understand and grab hold of both the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus above all things. And what we find in our life as Christ followers is oftentimes we will declare through things like worship music and prayer and public speaking and sitting around with our friends and maybe prayers over the dinner table or whatever it is, the supremacy and superiority of Jesus. But when we evaluate our life, there are many places in our life where often he doesn't take that role. And so the author of Hebrews not only is attempting to remind us of this to encourage us, but also to say, where is it in your life that he is not reigning supreme? And that could be a whole bunch of different things, right? And as we've kind of worked our way through chapters one and two, he spent a lot of time expressing the deity of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus, the love of Jesus. Last week, we talked about the fact that in Christ, we are adopted into a family, and the beauty of that. And hopefully in your small groups you were able to discuss that. And I'm hoping that you were kind of overwhelmed with what the Lord does through that. Today, we get to talk about something that's really interesting. The humanity of Jesus. Um, As I've studied church history, what I have found is that most of the heresies that take place doctrinally revolve around the person of Jesus. And a lot of those heresies revolve around the lack of human understanding around either the Trinity 
or who Jesus is as both God and man. It's a difficult concept to understand. So I came to faith in Jesus when I was about 10 years old-ish. I went to a Christian elementary school. I've told you some of this. I don't remember the actual story. I just remember a red-headed teacher expressing the gospel through some story about a tugboat that I don't remember. And I remember at the end, she asked, is there anyone here who would like to profess faith in Jesus? And I remember in, in 200 students in this little auditorium, I stood up and I looked around and I couldn't believe I was the only one standing. And I remember walking into this little side room and kneeling on this blue chair and professing what I believe to be the truth of Christ. But even in the midst of that, as I walked through my journey, one of the things that I struggled understanding was seeing Jesus as a human being. I understood him from the aspect of God. I understood that he had come and lived the life I was supposed to live and died the death I deserve and three days later rose conquering sin, Satan, and death and then offered that to me. But the concept of trying to relate to him as a human being was beyond what I could comprehend, I guess, as a 10-year-old. But I have realized over time, and like I said, in church history, you'll find that there's moments where different organizations or different preachers or different churches or different belief systems will kind of attempt to take this idea of this of Christ being 100% man and 100% God at the same time and try to rationalize it in a way that makes sense to us as finite human beings. And so like if you look at church history we have way back in the 300s or even before we have the Arians who were who were basically pushing the fact that um, Yes, Jesus was a good person, and yes, he was man, but there's no way he could be fully God. And then you have other people like the docents who are basically saying the exact opposite. Well, he, he's fully God, so he can't be fully man. And what this passage of Scripture is attempting to do is help us understand the humanity of Christ and its importance. And I guess as I've gotten older, and I've worked through this, the reality is that if you don't see, we've already wrestled with Jesus as God. We wrestled with that in chapter one. And so now as we move through, okay, he's God, but he's also 100% man. The importance of wrestling through that and understanding is, is that this is what makes it personal for us. There's ramifications to the gospel on a negative end if Jesus isn't also 100% man. And so just as a quick review, Jesus claimed to be God. He was God. In chapter 1, we find that he is related to God, that he is called eternal, that he is, we, we mentioned the fact that all things were created through him and for him and for his glory, that we were created to bring glory to Jesus. He's God. And what can happen if that's the end of your theology or the end of your understanding of Jesus is you can create this distance between you and him and say, okay, yeah, I know the gospel's for me, but how is it really for me? It's, it's this distant kind of being that created all things that I can't possibly understand, and, and he's doing his thing up there, and then if that's where you stay, it never becomes personal, and you won't develop the relationship that he desires you to have with him. So the humanity of Jesus has huge implications. So let's dive in here. 
It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So this first section, it's basically talking about the idea that Jesus has come to help us be released from the slavery of death. And so in order to really grasp the importance of Jesus actually becoming human, we have to understand first the purpose. That we go all the way back at the beginning in Genesis when Adam and Eve made a decision and were tempted by the enemy. And when that decision was made and sin entered the world, there was this separation between man and our Creator. And when this separation existed, it was a major problem for us. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death, which means that in sin, what we deserve, our wage for sinning is we deserve death. And since we know that Jesus is 100% God because we've already discussed this, then we know that sinning against an eternal God means eternal punishment. (laughs) Therefore, the wages of sin is death. Death means eternal death, complete and, and utter separation from our Creator, which makes things difficult when you're created for a purpose and can no longer do it. But things get a little bit more even depressing, I guess, when we think about the condition of mankind apart from God. It says that the enemy came and, and enslaves us. Uh, Paul talks about this in the book of Romans where he brings up the idea that outside of Jesus, outside of him freeing us, we are slaves to sin. We have no choice but to sin. It's We talk about slavery being such a bad thing, and obviously it is, but what we don't associate slavery with is the idea that as human beings, we're born into a slavery that we cannot remove. We're stuck. You know, we just did a baby dedication, right? And what's fascinating about when you start raising children is you don't teach them really how to sin. They just start doing it. Like, I'll remember the first time that Lacey, little Lacey, right, my my cute little blue-eyed, blonde-haired daughter that I just adore, still, I remember watching her run around and and just going, oh, we have raised, like, she is the perfect child. And then I remember the first time she looked at me in the eyes and just outright lied to me. And I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? Like, I didn't teach her to do that. Maybe I modeled that at some point because obviously I'm a dirty, rotten sinner as well, but I didn't teach her to lie. Where does that come from? There's this nature that we have, this sin nature that, that, that causes us to do things that we would normally not choose to do. In fact, what's fascinating about sin is sin is utterly destructive and we don't necessarily desire to destroy ourselves, we find ourselves living a life that's constantly destroying us. We'll choose to do things that destroy us slowly over time. It's an interesting problem. And every human being who has ever been born, minus one, has suffered with this slavery. 
So in the beginning of this passage, it says that Jesus comes and he takes on that flesh. Um, oftentimes, like if you take our, our doctrine class, which you have to do to become a member at Church at the Well, one of the things that we'll talk about is the importance of the virgin birth. And people ask about this all the time. Like, first of all, if you just step, step back and you look at the gospel, you might go, this is one of the weirdest ways to save people that you would ever come up with, right? Like, this isn't how I would do it. How would you do it? Well, you'd like grab somebody from the MCU, right? And you would say, okay, like, here's what our heroes look like. They have these superpowers. They do these things. They save people from practical issues. The idea that salvation is going to come from saving us our spiritual eternal soul is bizarre. And the way that it's done is utterly bizarre. It's mysterious. But the virgin birth is such an important component that Jesus literally becomes flesh. That he's literally born. That he's literally in Mary's womb as uh, the, the Holy Spirit has fathered him. And you go, well, what is the point? Like, why does this even have to happen? Is this just so that he, we know that he's special from the beginning? And the, ultimately, well, maybe a little bit, but what it really boils down to is Jesus is freed from being born into slavery, being born of a virgin. And so I want to pick on guys here for a minute. Where does the sin nature come from? Men. That's just where it comes from, right? So if sin nature, if we, we look at Adam, and Adam is ultimately the failure here, and every human being from that point forward who's born of woman is wrapped in this slavery of sin with eternal death as the punishment, and Jesus is born of a virgin, and yet he isn't born into slavery then because we know that he didn't have an earthly father. He had to be born of the Holy Spirit. He had to be born of no earthly father so that that sin nature wasn't passed down to him. He's freed of it. I know this is deep theology, but it's so vitally important that we understand that. So when we're looking at and celebrating Christmas, it's not just celebrating his birth. It's actually celebrating the second Adam being born outside of slavery. And understanding that concept begins this process of helping us understand what Jesus is actually going to do while he's here. This passage says that he literally takes on this flesh. He, he takes on our flesh, our blood. He's literally born. He's going to represent mankind as this second Adam. And he's ultimately coming. And he says this over and over during his earthly ministry. I'm coming to set the captives free. I'm coming to take those who are enslaved to sin and free them. I'm here to cut the chains. I'm here so that individuals who understand their own depravity and understand that they're chained to sin have a way to get out. It describes him as coming as this pure Savior to remove all of humanity, all who would believe in him from slavery. It's a beautiful thing to think about. Like it, it, it goes beyond all of those superhero movies, right? It goes beyond just saving you from the practical. It, it goes to this place where we realize that one of the reasons Jesus had to become man is so that he could represent us well. 
that it was actually human flesh that's going to be the Savior. And that's, that's deep. And you go, well, so what is this balance between Jesus having to be 100% man and 100% God? Well, any human being can represent another human being, but so as, as Jesus being 100% man, he can represent us as the second Adam. He's the only other individual outside of Adam who fell into sin that was born not with the sin nature, and therefore he has the opportunity to represent mankind well. But as God, he has the, and his infinite worth and his value, he has the ability to represent all who would be saved. It's not just one man for one man because he's so much more valuable. So the first thing that this passage is trying to really help us understand is the importance of Jesus' humanity in setting us free. The second thing, it says, therefore he had, in verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's a lot here, and I'm going to focus on this word propitiation. And if you've been in church world long, you've heard this word before. It's all over Scripture. Um, it's a legal term. But before we get to that, the understanding here is that Jesus is coming on a mission. He doesn't just show up in human flesh to go, look what I can do. He doesn't just show up and say, okay, I'm going to change everything that's happened in the past. He, he doesn't show up and say, okay, yes, I'm God, and I'm also human now, and so what we're going to do here is I'm just going to forget everything in the past, and we're just going to start anew. He doesn't do that. We know that we talked about this in chapter 1 as well, that, that God is immutable, meaning he never changes. So when he declares that the wages of sin is death, the wages of sin will always be death. God doesn't, in his holiness, doesn't just go, oh, well, I love you so much that I'm just going to forget the fact that you've been rebelling against me your whole life. Once again, perfect time for baby dedication, right? I mean, when we're parenting a child, there's ramifications for neglect. Bad parenting produces bad children, right? It just does. You know, it's, if my child learns that it's okay to run out in the street, eventually they're going to get hit by a car. And there'll be ramifications for that. It would be as God referring to himself as our father, he would be a bad father to say, look, there's no ramifications for what you've been doing. Yeah, you can sin against me all you want. My love's just gonna overpower that. He says, no, the, there's still punishment. There's still a price to be paid. There's still something that has to happen. There's still, the wrath of God still has to be appeased. Why? Because he said the wages of sin is death. And if you live a sin-cursed, in a, a sin-cursed life, then you have to die. I think from an emotional standpoint, I remember a long, years and years ago, there was a pastor who kind of went off the deep end and he ended up kind of leaving the church and he wrote this book called Love Wins. And the concept behind this book was, well, if God really is love, then he would never allow 
anyone to go to a place called hell for eternity because his love would overpower all of that. And I'm like, man, what a heresy this is. Why is it so appealing, though, to hear that? I would suggest two practical reasons. One, it's very human of us to want to get out of the ramifications of our choices. Right? We don't look at our own depravity as a problem. In fact, we're so underwhelmed by our own depravity that one of the ways that we help ourselves as looking better is to judge ourselves in comparison to the person next to us. Right? Because typically it's like this. Well, I'm not great, but I'm not that bad. Right? Like, I, I'm, I know that I have my issues, but I'm not Hitler. Right? And we always want to throw his name out there because if we can't find anybody else, it's him. So we have this mentality in us to kind of create these scales to where we go, well, as long as I'm better than that person. It was like, um, I'll, I'll pick on myself because we used to say all the time, like if you're going to do something bad as a kid, you always wanted to take that one slow kid, right? Because you, if you, as, long as, you out, as long as you outran him, then he would be the one to get caught and everything's fine, right? I um, was telling somebody recently, like I am a terrible swimmer. When I swim, it's ugly. Now, I can stay above water, and I'm a decent athlete, but for some reason, swimming is not my thing. I remember this, I remember telling this story once about, okay, we were gonna go out and do something and that we weren't supposed to do, and I remember actually inviting a kid that we knew wasn't athletic and we knew we were gonna have to run because we would all be able to outrun him and he would be the one to get caught. And I was in this race once, where you had to sprint and then dive into, a, into like a, a river and swim across this very short river and tag the next person in this relay, right? And so I run and I'm, I'm, I was fast. I used to be fast, now I'm slow. So I was fast, right? And so I outrun everyone. I'm looking behind me and I'm like, this is a joke. Like my pride's starting to get to me. Like, like I'm in the water so much faster than anyone else. And then when I got out of the water, I was the last one out of the water. And I'm like, how did everybody catch me? And I realized, I'm the slow kid. Like, I'm the one in the water that's slow. Right? There's this mentality in us that we just, as long as I'm not that person, and I can find somebody slower, I can find somebody worse, then I'm okay. And then I think the second justification that we use to override this is by looking at God and not truly understanding Him. We... We place his love for some reason above his holiness. And I know that's emotional. But to actually say something very painful here, that Jesus is just as glorified by people going to hell as people going to heaven, is difficult for us to grasp. You're like, why would you even say that? When people go to hell because they refuse Christ, it declares God's holiness and righteousness. When people are saved, it shows God's mercy and grace and love. Either way, Jesus is glorified because it displays who he actually is. Separating God's love from his holiness is impossible. 
We don't get to just create this God that we like. Oh, I want God to be love. He is love. But we can't ignore His holiness. We've seen the ramifications in our world of leaning into one of these two extremes without a balance. There's denominations out there that focus so much on His holiness that God's love is never displayed to individuals. And people walk away going, man, God's a bully. And He's just sitting around waiting for me to screw up and throw lightning bolts at me, right? And we've seen what that produces. It produces a false faith that's grounded in fear. It produces something that's not contagious. It's not joyful. And then we've also seen the ramifications of ignoring God's holiness. It prevents us from speaking truth. It prevents us from addressing sin issues. It prevents us from saying, look, you're really a mess and you need Jesus. He's the only one that can free you. When we understand that God is both loving and holy, that He's merciful and just, and that that is His character as He's described it to us, then we can fully understand why Jesus had to come to be our propitiation. Paul talks about this. He says, it's not like God could just go, oh, I'm just going to wipe the slate clean. No, because he said there were ramifications for the sin. Somebody has to die. The punishment has to be paid. And for every human being who doesn't know Christ, we have to pay that punishment. Propitiation describes this individual in Christ showing up as a human being as the second Adam and then taking our place. He, propitiation actually means appeasing. It, it has atoning tones around it. It's the idea of something comes and appeases God's wrath because the proper price was paid. It wasn't that, as a Christ follower, it wasn't that Jesus just came to you and said, okay, I love you and I'm taking your spot and there's no cost for that. He says, I love you, I care about you, but the cost of your salvation is going to be me paying the price that you're supposed to pay. And in doing so, we call this propitiation. It is this legal transaction that takes place where... Jesus actually pays the penalty that you deserve. It's not just looked past. It, this is what makes the gospel so beautifully personal. When you look at Christ and you look at a relationship with Jesus, you're looking at not just your Lord, not just an individual who created you, not just an individual who gives you purpose, but also a human being who values you enough and values God's holiness enough to actually pay the price that you are supposed to pay. The wages of sin is death. It Hold on.
Are we good now? Yay, thank you, Anna. Wages of sin kills mics. Okay. Um, here, can I give you those? Thank you. So, the idea here in what this passage is describing is that as he comes for the propitiation of sins, he's coming to pay the price that we're supposed to pay. It's as if, think of it this way, it's you have a debt that's owed and somebody's stepping in to pay that debt. It's not just that the debt's forgiven, it still has to be paid. And he says, I'm gonna pay that for you. And what's the debt that's owed? Death. So we have this picture that we celebrated Easter, right? Good Friday. Of Jesus taking the wrath of God. And in order to truly understand the gospel, we have to grasp that it was supposed to be us on that cross. There's a... There's an exchange here. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. This, this exchange that takes place where you owe a debt and Jesus literally pays that debt for you. There's a, a personal thing that happens here. It's why during Good Friday and we're looking at the suffering that Jesus went through, it wasn't just the physical pain that he went through. There comes this moment on the cross where Jesus literally my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you go, what is that about? Jesus knew what he was getting himself into, didn't he? Like he knew he was coming to pay this physical pain. But in God's sovereignty at, at some point, and to describe how this occurs, I don't know. But at, at, this is a moment in Jesus' life where he feels separation from the Father. He feels the alienation. A sinless being who has suffered now physical pain is also shunned by the Father. He's utterly alone. He doesn't just experience the physical pain that we're supposed to experience. It's not just a physical death. He actually also experiences the spiritual death of pure separation. The weight that Jesus feels for us is unbelievable. He literally enters hell, separated from the Father. One of the questions we get asked a lot is like, well, what did Jesus do while he was dead? Like when I was a kid, I thought about this, right? Three days later, he rose. Where did he go? Like, did he just... Like, go chill with the Father, and he's like, okay, you just let me know, and I'll head back. There was, like, tea time. Like, he just threw his feet up, and, like, like sitting around the, the, the angels and going, see that? That hurt. Like, what was he doing? Scripture says that he descended into hell. He, he literally went down and began to set the captives free. that he experienced everything that we would experience if we paid the wrath. We have to grasp this. This can't happen if he's not a human being. He can't represent mankind. So he makes propitiation for the sins of his people. And lastly, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
if I'm honest, this is my favorite thing. Right? Because some of this other stuff, it reminds you of your depravity, which is really important. It reminds you of the suffering. It reminds you of the price that we should have paid. It reminds us of the price that many will pay outside of Christ. And it has this tone to it of almost like, wow, this is hard and heavy and depressing. Yet, we find that Jesus doesn't just come just to pay the penalty for your sin. He actually comes so that as a human being, he can relate to what you go through on a daily basis. I don't understand this one. This one makes me emotional. I don't know why God would care enough. Like, why would God care about what I'm going through? Have you ever, you know, I try to be as real with you guys as possible, and one of the things that I have learned over time, and I, I learn these things because I, I, I try to examine my own heart and to just say the things that typically most Christ followers aren't gonna say, and that is, here's, here's one of the reasons why our prayer lives are terrible. One of the reasons is because we think that there's certain things that go on in our life that aren't worthy to take to Jesus. It's like, I'll take the big stuff, right? Like, is that worthy enough? Like, I'll ask God for the big things or the things that I want or the things that like, like really matter and all we're doing is we're basically saying, okay, God, I've got it. And then when things get really hard, that's when I'll come to you because I just, I don't know if this is heavy enough. I don't know if this is worthy enough to bring to you. And so we make this distinction in our prayer lives of either going, you know what? I don't think God would truly be interested that I'm feeling depressed today. Right? Like, why would he care about that? Is that, like, look at the war that's going on. Look at the suffering that's happening. Maybe I should be praying about that. Well, you should be. But does it really matter in the midst of all of the stuff that's going on in this world that Jesus would care that I'm just having a bad day? That for some reason I'm just not feeling it today? Does he really care that last night my little 15-year-old dog kept me up all night? Which he did. Which she did. And then I woke up and go, I love you and I don't like you. Thank you, Hope. Right? That I'm tired and didn't get any sleep. Does he really care? Does that really matter? What ends up happening when we think that way is we end up leaving part of ourselves away from experiencing who Jesus is fully. We begin to kind of segregate things. I think the other reason, and we see it in Scripture, that we kind of avoid the idea of this is because oftentimes we feel like our sin or our choice may have been so horrible that I can't possibly bring this to Jesus. And the tendency even of Christ followers is when we do something foolish or sinful is to try to hide from Jesus instead of run towards him. This is in Scripture all over the place. King David's a great example. The guy was miserable for two years just because he refused to acknowledge anything. He wrote these psalms where he talks about, it was like my bones were brittle and dried up and were just like ash. And when I tasted food, it was like ash in my mouth. 
What makes this passage, verse 18, so important is that we realize that Jesus comes as a human being and he has experienced everything that we experience. He was tempted like we're tempted. He felt pain like we feel pain. He had bad days like we have bad days. He saw the social anxiety that goes on. He saw all of the tension. He saw the politics. He saw wars. He saw people being persecuted. He saw racism. He watched it. He experienced it. He he gets it. He when we have fears and doubts, he he understands why we would have those. When we're experiencing loss and pain, he he gets that. He had emotions like we have. And you say, well, yeah, but all of us have that. Yeah, but there's a difference in Jesus is not only does he understand it, but he handled every one of them perfectly without sinning. So he provides this sympathy and compassion for us, but also provides us wisdom and the ability to overcome in him. He says, I know what you're going through because I've gone through it. And if you'll do it this way, you'll come out better than worse. If you'll do it this way and keep your eyes focused on me, if you'll, if you'll lay your heavy burdens down and take up my light burden, if you'll just release those things to me, then I will show you how good can come out of this situation. The gospel reminds us that he cares more about your heart than what you do. He's not impressed. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We talked about the fact that what are you really going to do to impress God? Hey, do you see what I did? I talked to that person. He's like, yeah, I died for humanity. What are you going to do? The gospel reminds us that Jesus coming in the flesh, the fact that he relates to us and understands us and has sympathy and compassion for us and yet provides us the way to handle every circumstance and every situation if we'll lean into him makes him the perfect confidant it makes him the perfect individual to take everything to better than anyone i mean yeah we the church is important because we have accountability together and we, we help each other and we encourage each other, but what really is the church supposed to do in all of that? Push you to Christ. Right? As a human being, I can only do so much. Your friends can only do so much. Your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse can only do so much. So the church's job is to say, yes, I'm here for you, but I'm here for you to push you to Christ who fully understands everything. Well, how do you know he fully understands everything? Because he lived as a man. He had a mom. This one, you know, I've, I've made fun of this before because I, and I say it often where it's like, I don't know what it would have been like to be the mom of a perfect kid. Like, 
at what point does Jesus just look at his mom and go, well, that's just insane. I can't believe that you actually think that way. Yeah, mom, that's great. I'm going to honor you, but I don't know if you guys saw The Passion of the Christ. It's old. Uh, This is not an endorsement of it. But there's a moment in it where they tried to kind of relate this where Jesus as a carpenter is making a table. If you remember this, and she's looking at him because the table looks too short, and she's like, you really screwed this one up, Jesus. Like, scrap it, burn it, build a new table. And he's like, no, no, no. You guys have been standing. We're going to sit. I'm going to show you what to do. Like, and he's, I guess he vinced the chair or something is what they're trying to say, right? But it's this idea that you guys don't understand. Like, you have such a finite understanding of everything, and Jesus gets it all. New discoveries get made all the time. I'm not a space guy. Some people are. It it is what it is. I I get overwhelmed by it and the size of the universe. And my undergrad's in science, and here I'm saying I don't really, you know, get it all. But I just picture, like, the Lord when the telescope was made. Like, just turn it a little bit more this way. Focus it in, and I can't wait for them to see this thing that I made. And when you think about the God that created all of that, and you think about the God that came and provided propitiation for your sin, and then you think about the fact that He took on flesh so that He can understand us and relate to us, that should blow our minds. The God that created the Milky Way cares about your problems. The God that died on the cross cares about your relationships, cares about your marriage, cares about how you behave, cares about how you feel, cares about your job, cares about your family, cares about the fact when you're feeling lonely or depressed or hurt, understands the pain of betrayal, knows what it's like to live in a sin-cursed world where you wonder if you can trust anybody. Knows what it's like to have the closest person to you utterly reject you. Knows what it's like to pour into somebody as a disciple and watch them walk away. Knows what it's like to engage a world with love and be completely rejected. Knows what it's like to be the perfect individual and the world's response was, you have to die. That's Jesus. He gets it. Jesus' humanity is so important to us for all of these reasons. Not only does He come and set us free, not only does He provide for our atonement and the propitiation for our sin and appease God's wrath so that no longer we view God as this individual who's just waiting for me to fail and mess up so that he can punish us. That's not how family works. We talked about that last week. But he also became human so that he understands us to the fullest extent. He knows what it feels like to live in a sin-cursed world. If he came today, instead of back then, he would be experiencing everything that we're going through. 
and he gets it. This is why the gospel becomes personal. It has to. It's why we say, yes, Jesus came to save many, but he came to save you. He came to save me. It, it's personal. It's, it, it requires us to really see it as that. And the fact that he is human being flesh allows that connection to be made because he's not so far removed as we think that he is. So just a couple of questions for you to think about. One, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe you've never heard the gospel, maybe this is the first time that this has been explained to you this way, maybe it's the first time that you've heard that you have a God that loves you but also requires justice. Maybe you've come from a background where you've heard that God just forgives everything and is all love and you've attempted to live that out but you realize that that's not really how life works and it's not in your experience. Or maybe you've come from a tradition that just focuses so much on God's holiness that you realize that you can never be perfect and have no idea how to relate to such a being. What you've heard today is this personal connection that you can have with your creator through the person of Jesus. You're not intended to live in this sin-cursed world in the sin-cursed body on your own. That's not what you were created for. You were created to have purpose. You were created to bring glory to Jesus. You were created to be loved and cared for. You were created to have, be on mission, to make an impact, to be filled with joy. And the only way that that can happen is if you're willing to understand that there's a God who became flesh and lived the life that you were supposed to live and died the death that you deserve. And three days later, rose conquering sin, Satan, and death forever and says, you owe a debt, but I've got you. If that's you, I invite you like you can know Christ today, right? There's nothing mystical that has to happen. It's just an exchange of faith. It's taking all of the faith and all the doubt and all the fears that you have and placing them on Christ and Christ alone. And my encouragement to you would be to talk to somebody. You can come talk to me if you like, but like every week I say, turn to the person next to you. Turn to the person that brought you. Say, do you know Jesus? And if they say yes, say, can we have a conversation? I know a great coffee shop you can go sit down at. Three. But don't leave here hopeless. Don't leave here continuing to be a slave to sin when you have the ability to be freed. For the church, I mentioned at the beginning that I think one of the disconnects here is that since we don't fully grasp this, we tend to compartmentalize our, lives, compartmentalize our lives or we tend to keep Jesus out of certain areas of our lives or we tend to think that maybe we're not that important. You are important. The reality is you are a big deal in Christ. 
It's fascinating to think that you're loved enough that Jesus would die for you. That creates two things in us as Christ followers. It creates an understanding that you are valued in Christ, but it also creates a humility in Christ that is so important. I don't deserve it, but I have it. I can't earn it, but it's been given to me. Like, the, the challenge here that the author of Hebrews is trying to give us is evaluating our lives and saying, are we actually living that out? Are you living your life like you know Jesus personally? Is your conversation with him just like it would be with someone else, but even more important, do you truly grasp the idea that he does understand and care about you? Do you truly believe that he has the answers? Do you really believe that his burden is light? Like, where are you not applying this? That's the most important thing as a Christ follower that we need to answer from this. Like, are we not grasping the importance of Jesus' humanity to the point where we understand how it truly relates to us personally? That he desires to spend time with you. That he desires for you to commune with him. That he desires to impact every area of your life. That he cares. That he's the best source of every answer and hope that we would ever need. And what needs to change as a result? when we identify what's going on and we realize these places where we haven't allowed Jesus to truly enter, those are the places where we need to release to him. Last thing I'll say, some of you have come in here so burdened, whether you're a believer or not, with sin that is going on in your heart or external sin that you almost feel like you have to pull away. And all I'm gonna encourage you in is this. Jesus already paid it. To suffer needlessly uh, and live a life that's grounded in guilt and know Jesus is not to know Jesus. You are not to be defined by guilt. We are to be defined by repentance. There's no reason for us to live guilty, heavy, burdensome lives. Jesus already paid for that. We just have to accept that. We repent, meaning we acknowledge it. We understand that it's sin. We relate to the fact that what we're doing is actually what put Jesus on the cross. We identify that personally And then we accept the forgiveness that he already has given. And we move on. Some of you, you need to get over yourselves. You need to stop living a life based on excuses of mistakes you've made instead of living in the power and the freedom of the gospel. Every week, we take communion at Church at the Well and If you are a believer in Christ, you are welcome to partake. You don't have to be a member of this church. You just need to be a member of the body of Christ. 
We take communion every week here because it's an opportunity for us to be reminded that any change that's going to take place in us has to begin at the foot of the cross. There's this weirdness that comes with taking communion where you go sad but joy, pain but love. It, it's this juxtaposition of all of these things that God is coming together. Which is why sometimes when we're taking communion during the week, it should be done in pure celebration because you realize how much you're loved. And it's why sometimes it's, it's taken with tears because you realize how much you've neglected the gospel. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing in your life or your heart, but I will tell you, if you're a Christ follower, you're invited to partake and be reminded that Jesus is the answer. He's everything. He loves you. He cares for you. He's provided everything that you need. He is superior. He is supreme. And He is sufficient. If you're here and you're not a Christ follower and you're feeling this need to response, all I'm going to ask, and no shame here, just don't participate in communion because I don't want you leaving here with a false hope. I don't want you leaving here going, oh, I did something religious, so God's happy with me. If you don't know Jesus... He's not happy with you. You're still chained to sin. A better response would be to have that conversation. Turn to that person. Help me understand better. Come find me. Maybe you need to come forward and just kneel. I don't, this is your time. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna sing a couple of songs. The communion elements are on both sides here. You're welcome to partake when you feel ready. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Lord, I, I can't sufficiently describe the importance of your humanity in words that make sense. So I ask that you just take the effort and use your Holy Spirit to impact hearts. Lord, I specifically want to pray for anyone in this room right now who has never experienced the love of Jesus. Lord, has a false understanding of who you are has defined you based upon others' opinions and not who you truly say that you are. Lord, I ask that you would regenerate their heart right where they sit. That you would remove the heart of stone. You would give them a heart of flesh. You would help them to see you as you truly are. That you would give them the ability to believe and you would give them the courage to ask the questions and, and trust you. Lord, I beg you that you would not let a single person leave here that doesn't know you personally. Lord, for your church, collectively forgive us for wanting to live certain parts of our lives without you. For categorizing our lives in ways that we believe that there's certain things that you care about and others that you don't. For not understanding the importance of you coming here as a human being so that not only can you be our Savior, but you can be the individual that we have pure relationship with that's honest and true. Lord, I pray that that separation would be eliminated. That your church would be so in love with Jesus that it would be contagious to the world around us. Lord, when we blow it, I pray that we wouldn't find ourselves walking away from you, that we would sprint towards you like Peter did. When he saw you and, and swam to you, Lord, needing repentance and forgiveness and love and understanding.
Lord, we thank you that you don't give up on us. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would do the work by your grace, all for the glory of Jesus and nothing more. And it's in his name we pray.